It is Wednesday, March 22nd, 2023. Welcome to episode 81 of Tone the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. Pitching talk every single week here, a production of John Boy Media as always. And we do this pitching discussions with the five-time World Series champ, David Cohn, the research ace, James Smythe, myself, Justin Shackle, producer Dan Work with us as well. Wow, gentlemen, World Baseball Classic, it's ended. Uh, Japan beat the U.S. last night 3-2. to two. We decided to hold off recording this week's episode until that game was played. Pretty good decision there. Uh, my gosh, James. My gosh, David. Did either of you ever expect that we would have the level of baseball theater in the month of March that we saw over the last couple of days? You know, actually, when we first talked about this before the first WBC, when I was part of the Players Association back in the mid-90s, this is what we talked about originally. It was like, man, you couldn't predict who could win. Could you imagine what the Dominican Republic team would look like? Could you imagine what the Japanese national team would look like? Venezuela, Mexico, on and on and on, you know, all over Latin America. And then, you know, of course, uh, with Japan and, and even Korea now. We, we thought, wow, this, this could be just a, a fantastic sort of an unpredictable tournament. It's kind of what it's become. This is the fifth one now. So, yeah, probably the best one right now that we just saw. Having Otani face Trout fulfilled everyone's wildest expectations going into the tournament. We talked about this early uh, a couple of weeks ago. What would it take to have, could we have USA versus Japan? Oh, maybe not till the finals. Well, it came down to Otani versus Trout. They're both carrying their team's flags onto the field during uh, the, the pregame introductions. And then it comes down to a one-run game, Shohei Otani closing it out, Mike Trout with two outs in the ninth. And it actually came down to these two superstars with the game on the line. And what a battle, what an at-bat. Otani pumping 100, 102 past Trout, and then the wicked sweeper that he dropped on him, perfectly placed, just an a absolutely perfect drama to end this WBC. It was fantastic. It's that's the part of the essence of baseball. The biggest moment somehow finds itself. And we were all clamoring for that ideal situation, that ideal moment. And what happens, like James said, it, it, it decides the game. It's the final moment of such a memorable tournament. Otani versus trout sick decision to go with the slider there on a three, two pitch there. I want to, uh, Talk about what made this year's tournament kind of the coming out party for the World Baseball Classic. David mentioned it was the fifth World Baseball Classic that we've seen. What this means for us with the future as far as expectations go. Uh, Japan obviously winning its third WBC. Uh, we saw a lot of interesting players here from Japan's side. We've seen this historically with the Japanese team as well. I'm wondering what names should be on your radar moving forward as it pertains to Japanese players in Major League Baseball. But uh, yeah, the full focus now is back on the Major League season. A couple of topics to touch on there. There's talks of some of the new rules being tweaked ahead of opening day. I think that's a lot earlier than many of us were anticipating uh, regarding possible rule changes. So we'll talk about that. We'll continue our Ongoing theme week by week here in terms of most important pitchers by division. This week, we wrap it up with the AL and the NL East divisions. And the Yankees apparently had a pretty important large meeting about their roster. We'll get into that. But just to carry over into the opener, 
obviously the reaction to the WBC finals coming up on uh, on from Tuesday night, Japan against the U.S., Trout, Otani. H- how do we think that the script wrote itself? And I'm not just talking about the final sequence. I'm talking about these two teams, what we saw Japan do to, to get here, everything that kind of was created, especially in Miami over the last five to seven days. How do you how, how do you think the World Baseball Classic got to the point this is the one that's going to stand out and hopefully be that launching pad for this tournament? Well, it, it's, it's so many variables involved here in terms of, uh, you know, a lot of the interest was, and a lot of the criticism centered around potential injuries, the Edwin Diaz injury, uh, Jose Altuve breaking his thumb, uh, on a hit by pitch and, and uh, all the emphasis put on that. Some of the players not participating uh, in, in the tournament because of the loyalty to their teams or Aaron judge mentioned he just signed a big contract and felt like it wasn't the right time for him. So I, I understand all of that, but I think the reaction of the fans, how important it is, the television ratings around the world. And I'm sure Fox had pretty decent ratings as well in this country, but I think it, if you didn't have a TV on in Japan watching that game last night, you were definitely in the very minority. I mean, the rating, the, the percentage of households tuned into that game in Japan was just absurd. I think uh, across Latin America and then the crowds and the frenzies that we saw in, in Miami in particular was just fantastic. And the players themselves, almost to a man, talking about how important this is to them, how different it is, how this is one of the best experiences they've ever had. So to, with all this put together, has the World Baseball Classic finally crossed the threshold from being an exhibition to being a real bonafide World Cup style, you know, competition? And does that cry out also for maybe a different format or a different timing of the tournament, whether it's the all-star break, whether it's when teams are, you know, fully uh, ready to go, it's not a spring training buildup type situation. Uh, maybe th- it's time to have that conversation because of the wild success and the wild popularity that has grown into what we just witnessed. We could do something around the all-star break. I, I've mentioned before how, you know, one good idea that I like is to have some of the preliminary rounds early on in, around this time of year. And then in lieu of the all-star game every three years for the WBC, you can have the, the knockout stages, the, the tournament style, the quarterfinal, semifinal, final. And it would really only... Uh, cause a minimal disruption to the regular seasons here in the States, in Japan and Korea, all the, the national uh, leagues that have their league play. You don't want that to get disturbed too much with the tournament, but this is one way you can kind of have the best of both worlds, I think. Yeah. I I think like baseball is in uh, demand mode and how are they going to efficiently provide, you know, themselves with enough supply to to meet these demands at this point so they're gonna they may have to pay closer attention to when this tournament goes on it's tough to find an ideal time i really like taking a break right around the all-star break every so you know every four years or so when this tournament pops up maybe you you do play pool play around this time during spring training and you have the the quarterfinals, semifinals, and the finals uh, in in July when when they break for an All Star break. A lot of different routes they they can go here. I think the uh, thinking though needs to be increased in terms of how we can meet this demand now because I this is the launching pad here. Twenty twenty three for whatever reason was the coming out party for the World Baseball Classic, and I'm wondering 
how much did all of the events from this year's tournament, because there were good ones, there were bad ones. And obviously the bad ones revolved around certain injuries. How much do you think that fostered the fan connection to this tournament? Well, did it grow the game? I think it, undoubtedly it has grown the game, certainly on an international stage. I also just really feel like culturally it's a gift to, to especially the Latin American countries who have given so much to Major League Baseball. If you look at the contributions over the last several decades from each individual country, whether it's Roberto Clemente or whether it's Venezuela or Dominican, all the Dominican uh, Republic players that are in the big leagues, how much they've contributed to the success of Major League Baseball. This is a tremendous showcase for them and their fans and a tremendous source of pride. So culturally, culturally we see a different brand of baseball, much you know, the, the fans so into it, almost uh, like Japanese fans cheering every pitch on their feet throughout the whole game, the way the players react, the age of, you know, go ahead and, and, and show some excitement and enthusiasm on the field. It's kind of grown from the Latin American style of baseball that has become more accepted in Major League Baseball because of that. You know, to me, the, it's a gift. This is a real gift to the to culture of baseball and to show a different side in a different way. That's very exciting. And the way forward, in my mind, you know, the, the, the exciting way forward to grow the game to the younger generation is to allow all, all of these interpretations of how to how to play this game come into play. And that's on on front and center stage in the World Baseball Classic. It's been so much fun. And I think in a weird way, the the fact that we had the the dark moment of Edwin Diaz's injury and then another sort of freak thing with Jose Altuve. Uh, getting hurt on something that could have happened on any pitch anywhere. The fact that all the players still said, you know, no regrets and, and that um, the, all the fans and, and teams still support this and that the, the, the knee jerk reaction wasn't, Oh my God, we have to cancel the WBC. It's even though this happened, we still love this event. Yeah, the, the knee-jerk reaction from the Diaz injury specifically was like, wow, all over a meaningless tournament. You see? You see what you did here? And the clapback from the players, I think, was massive because you cannot argue how a player feels. I mean, if that is the true sentiment of the player, who are we? Who are, you know, who are we as fans, who are you as individuals to then say, no, they're wrong, doesn't matter. That that obviously is your opinion in that point. You may not have to like it, but you have to respect the people who are involved in it. And if they're saying it's meaningful to them, you can't dispute that. Um, you, you could have a problem with the risk. And again, there's risk in any type of, of competition. So yeah, the World Baseball Classic does carry the risk for injury. Just like everything else, uh, you cannot say that it is pointless or that it, it has no meaning because you do not look like a smart person if that's the ammo you're firing with as far as the WBC goes here anymore. It may not appeal to you, but don't go with that card there. The player saying otherwise, that should be uh, enough for you to change your tune here. And uh, if that still didn't do it, I think the play on the field the last several days spoke for itself. And also, I think Miami played a large role in this. And David, you were there for the Dominican Republic-Puerto Rican game. Even during the finals on Tuesday, at least from what I was seeing on Twitter, people who've been there, a lot of them were saying, this scene is great. It doesn't compare to that 
Puerto Rico Dominican Republic game. And I, I wonder how much Miami and that ballpark played a role into what we saw in terms of the energy and the overall environment of this year's WBC. No, that's a great point. I mean, the, the, the Dominican Republic versus Puerto Rico game was just unreal. And it goes right to the heart of the matter. And, and you know, growing up in America and, you know, America's pastime over the last several decades, a lot of Americans and even American ballplayers. And this was a part of a lesson that I had to learn and that I've learned over the years was we tend to group all of Latin American ballplayers under one umbrella. And it is so different. There's so much difference between Venezuela and Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. And this is a this World Baseball Classic really shines a spotlight on that, on, on the pride of each individual country and, and how different they are and how competitive they are and uh, how much they want to represent their own individual countries. It means the world to them. And it really does distinguish the differences and the nuances between the cultures of of all of these different countries in Latin America. And as I said before, we tend to say, oh, we, these are Latin American ballplayers. Uh, no, that's a Venezuelan ballplayer. Weber Torres is from Venezuela. You know, the Dominican, Pedro Martinez is from the Dominican Republic. So is Big Poppy. You know, Jorge Posada, no, no, he, he's from Puerto Rico. You know, it's a huge difference. It's very important to these guys. And something that I think that the this, this particular format is really brought to the forefront. Rightly so, it's educational, it's cultural, it's about pride. It's about representation. All right. World Baseball Classics in the books now. A lot of people to choose from when I ask this question, but who do you guys think was the star of the World Baseball Classic? Wow. You had to pick just one singular person. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to go against Shohei Otani. I mean, he's just, uh, you know, a guy's got, put it, let me put it this way. You know, I, when I, when we, uh, in 1995, when the Yankees played the Mariners in the playoffs, Randy Johnson came running out of the bullpen on one day's rest to pitch in relief. And he was a free agent that year. He had, you know, not hundreds of millions of dollars on the line at that point in the mid nineties in terms of dollars, but uh, he had a lot on the line and, and threw caution to the wind. And, and at that particular time, we said, you know, you know, baseball players are overpaid. They just care about the money. They don't care about the game. Well, that series proved everybody wrong. Everybody put, their careers on the line. That's what Otani did. You could see him running down to the bullpen, warming up, you know, caution to the wind. Let me get all that adrenaline. Yeah. The, the chance for injury in that spot is, is much more increased because of the adrenaline. He's not fully ramped up yet to pitch in that kind of environment, but yet he didn't care. He was pitching for his country. He was going to do whatever it took to win that game. And that included running down to the bullpen in case they needed him in the sixth or seventh inning, running back to the dugout to hit one more time. And then going back to the bullpen and warming up as the closer, almost coming in in the eighth inning when Darvish gave up the home run to Schwarber. Warming up, ready, if you need me now. I mean, that up and down situation as a reliever, as a short guy, it's not what he does. He's a starter. And this guy's got a half a billion dollar contract probably or more on the line coming up. He didn't care. He didn't care about money. He cared about pride. And to me, that that's that's the story there is, uh, you know, that that's what represents baseball. And that's what these players are all about. Uh, more than anything is about pride on the field and performance. It's not about money. Uh, these guys all make great money, but uh, Shohei Otani is going to go to a different stratosphere money-wise. That was the last thing on his mind last night. As much as I'd love to highlight Trey Turner, Roki Sasaki, Yuna Takamurakami, and, and on and on, it's Shohei Otani. Mm -hmm. 
And it's not just the one moment of him striking out Mike Trout to, to clinch it. You know, the, the home runs he was hitting in Japan in, in the, 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 the crazy atmosphere in Tokyo. It was his other games that he pitched, his starts. He was great. And then that moment, Coney, you played with great hitters, Daryl Strawberry early in your career, Manny Ramirez at the very end. You had great pitchers in your era. He combines both, and I don't think it's too outlandish to say he's the greatest baseball player who ever lived, and he is in his prime in front of us every day. To have him come through on this stage was really awesome. It was hitting him off the scoreboard at batting practice. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just a game. It's everywhere he goes. It's like all eyes are on him. And he's must-watch TV during batting practice. We haven't seen that since Mark McGuire. Yeah. You know what else we I, I feel like we saw that we don't get enough of in uh, Major League Baseball with Otani? There, there was a clip of him in the clubhouse exemplifying the type of leadership that I think is is there with him within the Angels – but with his Japanese teammates, he essentially, and I'm paraphrasing here, said something along the lines of, hey, for one night, you know, let's not look at these players, meaning the, the Team USA roster, um, as otherworldly individuals. We're, we're here for a reason. We're their equal. Let's stop admiring them for one night and go out and beat them. And I... I think that accentuates all the qualities that we see on the field with Otani, but also guy's a leader. Like obviously people are going to listen to what he says. And he was definitely the leader of that team with, with Japan. And I don't know about you guys, for me, Japanese pitching is so intriguing yet. It's really tough to keep a, a constant focus on what's going on in Japan with, with Japanese baseball, just with the, difference in schedules so when the world baseball classic comes around it's a great opportunity to remind yourselves of just how interesting like the nuances of Japanese baseball is but specifically with pitching and we obviously see that with all the individuals on the mound in in the world baseball classic for Japan and this goes back to like Daisuke Matsuzaka uh, when when this tournament started so I'm wondering and I know there are a couple names but if you had to pick one which Japanese pitcher do you want to see more of, whether it's on the major league level or just see what they can do in their respective Japanese league? The, the scouts would light up if they could pick and choose dozens of pitchers from the Japanese professional league right now. Uh, you know, obviously you go, you know, right to the top of the kid, the 21 year old kid we saw, and we've talked about him on this podcast, Roki Suzuki. Uh, Sasaki, he's just a, a amazing 21 years old, throwing 102 with a splitter that kind of cuts and, and, and his slider like action, right to left movement. He's just amazing. But there's no doubt to me that analytics has really impacted the pitching in Japan, just stylistically pitch design. The left handed starter last night showed up in Managa, uh, had one of those riding invisible fastballs that was just remarkable. I think it was almost 20 inches of induced vertical movement on his four-seam fastball. Uh, kind of that, you know, that that riding four-seamer we've seen over here by a lot of players, including Garrett Cole, that, with great success. So there's no doubt that the pitching is way ahead. The training for velocity, the velocity has gone up over the last 10 years. Their pitch design is just incredible. 
uh, the varied styles they threw one after another. The side armor throwing the sidearm fork balls too was just incredible coming out uh, of the. I'd have to pull up the box scores and I don't want to butcher names, but yes, there are a number of guys right at the top. It's Roki Sazaki. He's the guy because he's so young that you'd pick. But I tell you what, that that guy showed a Imanaga that started the lefty for Japan. He'd fit really nicely in a lot of big league rotations as a number three guy uh, across the board, including the Yankees rotation. And he, it was a, just a parade of guys with nasty stuff yes. coming in out of the bullpen. To answer the question, it's Roki Sasaki to me yeah. again, um, again because he is so young, twenty-one in his age twenty season. Uh, last year, he had a 202 ERA with 173 strikeouts in 129 innings. We saw the stuff throwing 102, the great breaking stuff. It was off the charts. And I guess a lot of the thinking or maybe a stereotype around the Japanese game is that, oh, pitch to contact and soft tossers. And, and it's like, a, like it's out of a time machine. These guys are throwing smoke. Yeah. Mike Petriello uh, tweeted it out on um, Wednesday morning. Pitches thrown 100 miles an hour plus in the WBC tournament, top to bottom. Japan, overwhelmingly number one at 58 pitches of 100 miles an hour plus. Next up was Venezuela at 20. So a huge gap there. And by the way, uh, USA, zero uh, to show that the gap there. Um, and top to bottom, the Japanese staff was just lights out. Yeah. The, the balance of all the pitchers, like cumulatively from Team Japan, it always fascinates me because there are so many moving parts in their deliveries and everything is synchronized. Everything is in lockstep with uh, with what needs to happen in terms of, uh, I think John Smoltz mentioned it last night, like their arm is always where it needs to be when they land on their front foot. Um they're despite all the unconventional light kicks compared to what we see from American pitchers, like the balance is always on point. It's really impressive. So if you're, you're really into the art of pitching, paying closer attention to some, some Japanese pitchers uh, definitely is the way to go. Um, I know Yoshinobu Yamamoto is one that can be posted after this coming season, not as young as Sasaki, but he's 24. And that's someone that I'm sure is uh, only helped by his performance here in the World Baseball Classic in terms of the posting process and how much money he can make if he comes to Major League Baseball. Sasaki, if you recall back to like this time last year, he's the guy that we were talking about who threw the perfect games in Japan, the consecutive scoreless inning streak. He threw a perfect game and he struck out 20 guys, I think, or 19, 20, right around there. So yeah, he is probably the best pitcher that's not in Major League Baseball right now on, on a world level. Um, Just to wrap up World Baseball Classic, Tar kind of segue into what's going on with a week to go until major league baseball's opening day here as it pertains to the angels we we got the matchup we wanted last night in the finals we we got kind of like a apex baseball moment in march felt a little weird you're thinking like hey what time of year really is this but we we had otani we had him facing trout and now they go back and get ready for their season with the angels and i'm wondering like has the pressure for the Angels this season increased as a result of what we just witnessed from Trout and Otani and the World Baseball Classic and fans clamoring them uh, for, for them to be on the big stage with the Angels. 
Yes, it's a great question. And, you know, I actually think that the Angels are going to be better than people give them credit for. They've kind of become the punching, punching bag for jokes about, you know, Otani and Trout. And, you know, by July, they're going to be playing. They're going to begin to beat by 10 runs. And Trout's going to break some record from the 1910s. And Otani's going to do something never seen before. And, oh, yeah, Angels lose 10 to 2, you know, or something something stupid like that. So I think they're going to be better this year. I um you know, I like Phil Nevin, I, you know, certainly pulling for him. I have a little bit internal bias there. He's a friend. And, we, you know, obviously with the Yankees, uh, we'd all love to see the Angels do better for, for obvious reasons because of Trout and Otani. But Rendon's healthy. If he can do what he's supposed to do. Uh, Patrick Sandoval is, is a guy that I picked earlier on one of our podcasts to kind of have a potential breakout year. Obviously, Otani. I think they're going to be better than people think. And if you look to last year with the expanded playoff format, Team that won 86 wins got to the World Series, Philadelphia Phillies. So to me, that, that that's an interesting part to watch. Now, we're now in the second year of the expanded playoff format. And you can hang around 500 for the majority of the year and make a little run at the end. You can get in the tournament. You can get in the postseason. The Angels are in that position in my mind. So yeah, this is the year they, they stop becoming the laughingstock in my mind. That's my prediction right here, right now on towing, towing the slab. So, uh, yes, the, the pressure's up to answer your question, Jack. Uh, but also, I think I think uh, watch out for the Angels. They, they're kind of a, a sleeper team this year that, that finally breaks through and gets those two great players into postseason play. You know, there's a, a meme that was going around uh, the last couple of days where you had the WBC team with Mike Trout, the WBC team with Shohei Otani, and then there's the actual MLB team with both of them. And the angels have been this sort of a punching bag as, as Coney said, but I'm with you. I think I, maybe this is Lucy in the football, you know, pulling it away at the last <laughs> second is every year. It's like, Oh, this is going to be the year that trout gets back to the postseason. Shohei Otani on the, on the big stage in October, yada, yada. And then they end up being under 500. But I think the difference with this team is that it's less stars and scrubs. They have better depth players behind them to help carry the team. You know, Tyler Anderson, not a Cy Young candidate, but that's a good pickup for the rotation. Adding to the lineup, Hunter Renfro, Brandon Drury, Gio Urshela. These guys aren't superstars, but they have better pieces to fill out the lineup behind these guys. And I think that's a big reason why I think they'll be above 500. They're right there in the mix uh, for the postseason. And I think because of the expanded format, hey, you know what? 86 wins. That's right around where their projection is on Pakoda. And if guys stay healthy, you have the best leg up on the competition when you have a starting point of Mike Trout, Shohei Otani. Those two guys alone could be worth 20 wins. So get over the line and get in the postseason. Yeah, I don't know if they're going to be able to cross that line and, and crack the postseason finally, but you cannot say that the Angels haven't put forth a terrific effort in the off season and improve their depth. And obviously depth goes a long way. And we're going to talk about some teams uh, with, with some depth issues, I guess, in, in the uh, most important pitching segment with the AL and NL East, because depth is an issue with a lot of those teams in those Eastern divisions. But yeah, you can't discredit the angels from uh, for a lack of uh, trying to improve their team this off season and increasing the, the, the depth chart, because there are pieces there that, provide them depth. So maybe this could be the year. Um, all right, guys, a lot of talk over the last couple of days 
about potential changes to some of these rules that we've seen in spring training. The Athletic reported that rule tweaks are coming faster than we anticipated, possibly before opening day. There's a number of items that are, I guess are up for debate that the MLBPA voiced their concerns over with some league officials, but I'm wondering what are you hoping can get adjusted based on what we've seen from spring play? Well, one thing, you know, we've talked about it, and I'm not sure it's been clarified, but I think it, it's, it bears repeating is what we saw with Max Scherzer and with men on base from the stretch position, that that really needs to be solidified and clarified, that you cannot be in the set position ready to deliver the pitch before the batter's in the box. That eight-second rule may be revisited too as well. A little bit of tweaking around the edges, I think, in terms of, uh, you know, are you going to give a little leeway, uh, you know, as we saw in, in yesterday's game in the Yankee game with Aaron Boone and, and Luis Severino, almost starting his delivery simultaneously as the clock ran down. You know, those sorts of things around the fringes, I think, will be dealt with, including the hitter and does he have to, when he has to be ready to be in the box and staring at, at the pitcher. Does that have to be if the catcher's not even there, the pitcher's not even on the mound? You know, little subtle nuances, I think, is what this more is more about. But to me, the most important thing is what Max Scherzer exposed the first day he pitched with the new rules was, I'm in the set position. I'm ready to fire the baseball with men on base. You're not even in the box. The minute you look at me, I'm firing it at you. That's unfair. That, that can't be allowed to happen. I hope it's tweaks rather than a lot of wholesale changes, and I think it will be more like a tweak. Um, I hope it's not based around the actual timer. I think uh, – Trying it out with, with 15 seconds with the bases empty, 20 of the runners on base is, is a good starting point. I think it's it's working. The amount of violations have been going down each week. Um, as far as little tweaks, maybe maybe we don't need the hitter has to be alert at eight seconds thing, or maybe that time can be moved. If the timer's running down for the pitcher, if the batter isn't alert to the pitcher at eight seconds, well, that's maybe that's their problem. And maybe mm -hmm. if they if if the clock is down, gets down to zero and they're not ready, then they'd still be assessed a strike. Maybe that's one thing they could do. Yeah, so the player's focus, according to that athletic article, was on uh, the following items. They said that, that the 15-second pitch timer is just too constricting with, with no one on base. They also said that, again, hitters should get a little bit more time in the box and shouldn't be in the box and kind of make that eye contact, be alert to the pitcher with – eight seconds left on the timer. There was an interesting one that I really hadn't heard too many people talk about, but that players who are involved in a defensive play to end a half an inning should get extra time if they're leading off the next half inning. So that one's kind of caught me off guard. And then that hitters should be allowed more than one timeout per plate appearance. My opinion, I don't want to see any time given back in any of these. I think you're, you know, you're, you're going against the immediate reaction from some of the players if I had to give any time back, it would probably be extending that, that eight second rule, maybe give another second or two, you know, make it down to the seven second mark, six second mark. But I thought the ones about players being involved in defensive plays that end a frame who are up the next inning being allowed more time. I think that's, that's pretty valid. You know what I'd like to see? Yeah, I'm going to give a request out to the pitching ninja right here on towing with towing the slab is, I'd like to see a pitch clock on that Otani Trout at bat last night in the ninth inning. I want to see you know, how the how that would play out with a pitch clock. I'm not 
nobody noticed anything, right? We weren't thinking no. about a pitch clock. It was all drama. I think that's one thing I'm interested in is late in the game, the drama, the buildup of the drama for an at-bat like we saw, the, the Otani-Trout at-bat. Back to the 70s, it was Bob Welsh and Reggie Jackson, I think, with a 10-minute strikeout at-bat that I still vividly almost dream about, you know, uh, to this day. When I was a kid, that was that was a tremendously impact, impactful, you know, dynamic on me or a scene that I saw as a kid growing up that made me a fan of baseball. So I'm curious. I'm wondering. I'm not sure there's anything egregious going on there, but, I'm, I, you know, the drama was allowed to build a little bit for that at-bat. We, we weren't even thinking about a pitch clock. That's the last – game we're going to see without a pitch clock by the way uh at least for the foreseeable future but i'm curious i wonder if there would have been any violations between either otani or trout in that particular event there are people calling for the rules to be tweaked in the postseason they're like hey take away the pitch clock for the postseason are you on board with that i don't know about no not fully i just think later in the games when there's more at stake that maybe there's a little leeway there, you know, built in. I don't know. It's whether when you start the clock or, you know, uh, whether a hitter can get a second timeout maybe in, in a big part of the game right now, the hitters only get one timeout. The pitcher can step off the rubber twice. So uh, yeah, I, that, that might be a little, uh, little something to look at to, to throw a bone to the hitters a little bit to give them on uh, equal footing with the pitchers in that situation. Hey, wait a minute. This is a big, big spot here. There might be a suicide squeeze on here. Timeout. I've got an extra timeout. I can step out of the box, get the signs, get on the same page with everybody here. Also get ready for maybe, you know, the biggest at bat of the game when, when, when something's on the line right here against a big time closer who's hard to hit. All right. So as we shift more toward opening day, there are a, a few pitchers who are of note that, We'll have a late start to the season. Um, some injuries popped up, obviously, in the World Baseball Classic, but certain teams who are title contenders are not going to be at full strength. And one of them is going to be the Dodgers. Tony Gonsolin, who, when he was on the field last year, was sensational, but he's expected to miss at least the first two turns in the rotation for Los Angeles to begin the season. Came down with an ankle sprain. Um, how confident are you both in the Dodgers pitching depth to open up this season, because we've talked about it before this offseason. Now more than ever, it seems like the NL West is tighter between the Dodgers and the rest of the field. Well, I will say this, you know, and it, you know, we, we both, we all here, we watch a lot of video, right. And games and spring training and try to get as much information as we can and see people as much as we can. There is one guy, one prospect with the Dodgers that I've seen that I just love his stuff. I love his delivery and by all by all measurements is a legitimate prospect and that that is Gavin Stone <laughs> if you haven't seen this kid pitch yet wow i mean he's got a plus plus changeup i mean almost a it's a parachute changeup it gets halfway to home plate pulls the ripcord and just fades and dives down and away he's increased his velocity like we've seen across the board with so many young pitchers with with the the advanced training methods and the weighted ball uh, systems he's now in the mid 90s with his fastball. So, uh, yes, the Dodgers, that's not even factoring in Bobby Miller, which is, uh, you know, one of their top prospects, the second rated prospect in the Dodger organization. Yeah, we've heard Bobby Miller's name before. Gavin Stone. Watch out for Gavin Stone. The Dodgers have tremendous depth. This kid's for real in my mind. I just love his delivery. I love the action on his pitches. Uh, he's somebody to watch. The Dodgers, I think, have earned everyone's trust in as far as, you know, team building and, and building a pitching staff and perennially 
allowing, you know, the fewest or, you know, some of the, one of the lowest run totals every year. And the assembly line is, is churning out more and more guys. And Gavin Stone, the season he had last year, he vaulted from high A to double A to triple A, a one, four, eight ERA. And in 121 innings, he had 168 strikeouts and only 44 walks. And he's still only 24. So he's someone that he can step in. Bobby Miller's a big name. And as far as Gonsolin goes, just like with every uh, pitcher who, who has a, an issue crop up, if it's only a couple of turns, fine, they'll survive. If it's much longer than that, then you start to worry because this is probably the thinnest their staff has been in years. Yeah, I, th- I just think it probably extends the narrative that Tony Gonsolin's durability is is in question uh, rather routinely here. But yeah, you you mentioned the rotation being pretty thin compared to recent seasons. You have Kershaw, you have Arias, who's pitching for a contract, Noah Syndergaard, and uh, Dustin May starting his first full season back from Tommy John surgery. But you're right, like this is what makes the Dodgers great. They have young soldiers at the ready. Um, prepared and capable of getting that first extended look in the majors, perhaps take their lumps and then be ready for when the games really matter, whether it is uh, Ryan, you know, Ryan Pepio. I know they have Michael Grove stone. Like you guys mentioned there, there there are pieces in place there. They are not without options compared to some uh, other title contenders. So for me, Gonsolin's durability probably could be called uh, into question at this point, but the Dodgers have the better pieces than most to, to get past this. And as of right now, again, only probably first half of April where this is uh, a a big question mark and a sticky situation for them, but they're going to get through it because why the the Dodgers Um, we, we talked about, pitchers in the NL West, the AL West a couple weeks ago. We nailed our most important starting pitchers in the Central Divisions last week. This week, one week ahead of opening day, we touch on the two divisions in the East, the AL East, the NL East. The most important starting pitcher from each of you in both divisions. David, let's start with you and go with the, let's go National League here. So the NL East, what's your, who's your most important starting pitcher? Well, you know, it's, to me, I'm still I'm looking at the Phillies. Uh, you know, I'm I'm looking at uh, you know their rotation kind of built on a couple of aces, but I still I still feel like that uh, you know the overall health of Wheeler is a key for the Phillies because he's the true power guy up there. Now we know, you know, obviously they have depth there. Uh, they have Trey Turner. A lot of it's talked about the offense and when's Bryce Harper coming back. But that true power guy at the top, the top of the order, it, to me, at the top of the rotation sets the tone, a true number one. That's a swing and miss guy with a power fastball. So so to me, it's Wheeler. Certainly Aaron Nola is a great pitcher, but to me, he's more of a craftsman, big curveball, moves it around, has a good fastball as well. So those two are kind of co-aces, but I think Wheeler's the guy. I mean, you kind of know what you're going to get from, from Aaron Nola. He's solid, solidified himself over the last five or six years. So you kind of you kind of pencil him in Wheeler and his health, his overall health as it's been up and down over the years. If if he's the guy, uh, boy, the Phillies are the team to watch. I'm going with Justin Verlander. So I guess maybe a little bit of a chalky sort of pick, but he's 40 years old. 
He made 28 starts last year coming off Tommy John. If he has anything like a season he had last year, the Mets will be in great shape. But he's a bit of a question mark to me. It's going to be year to year, I guess, with him, right? It's, he had a 175 ERA last year, won the American League Cy Young, switching leagues, jumping into a team with obviously enormous expectations. And with Jose Quintana's injury and some question marks at the bottom of the rotation, I think it's going to be imperative for Verlander and Max Scherzer, of course, uh, to do what they're supposed to do and kind of anchor that, that rotation in Queens. All right, we're going to have three different starting pitchers from three different teams. I like this. Here we go. Uh, uh, Max Freed for me. Um, the division belongs to the Braves until they lose it at this point. Uh, they've won five straight NL East titles. Max Freed is at the top of their staff, and that means his performance is going to be crucial to Atlanta holding off the other power players, the Phillies, the Mets, teams that you guys just talked about. Uh, the questions of Max Free. Will he thrive with that added pressure? Plus, there is the the looming talk of him needing to continue to perform with his current contract situation that we've touched on countless times here this offseason. So a career year from Max Freed is something that is certainly feasible in terms of, you know, players capable of having those career years, Max Freed is as good of a pick as anyone. And a career year from Freed would go a long way personally and from a team-wide perspective as well. So Max Freed, to me, is the most important pitcher in the National League East. AL East. James, let's start with you. I'm going with Carlos Rodon. And I think it's a, a pretty easy choice for me personally. Um, it's going to come down to health. And we know what he can do. We know he's one of the best pitch-for-pitch pitch starters, starters in the game. And throwing 132 innings in 2021, throwing 178 innings last season, who knows where he's going to end up in that inning count this year if he really only misses the first month of the season and you know makes every start after that, then April will just be a blip and no one will care. But because of the injury history he has before 2021, it's always going to be in the back of your mind about, well, how durable is this guy really going to be here? Great point. Great points as always. Uh, I got to go up north of the border, you know, and, and you, you look at the Blue Jays, kind of a sleeping giant up there. You know, I played for the Blue Jays. I know how they're Canada's team. They had some television ratings on the spring training games that were just through the roof that were, that were unbelievable. You talk about sleeping giant. The Blue Jays are it. We know about Alec Manoa. We know about Gosman. To me, the guy who is the swing guy, can Jose Barrios get back on track? Is a huge, huge starter for them. Sliding in as the, as the three guy, but they have a long-term commitment to him over a five-year deal, I believe it is. So he's not going anywhere. So this is a huge year for them. They've used up a lot of resources on him. They need him to be the, the, the three guy. He doesn't have to be an ace. He doesn't have to be number one because you have Manoa and you have Gosman. But if Barrios can get back to form, get back anywhere near his average production over his career or what he's capable of, boy, that gives the Blue Jays a solid three at the top. And we know their young, their young lineup is, is tough, athletic, really tough to deal with. Got a new ballpark, new, new new dimensions up in Toronto. It's going to be interesting to see how it goes up there. I think home runs are probably going to fly a little bit more up there. They brought the fences in a little bit. I'm not sure how it's going to play, but it's going to be a different look up in Toronto at, at uh, the, the Rogers Center. So Jose Barrios is a big part of their rotation right in the middle to see if he can regain his form. The five seasons 
from 2017 to 2021, he had a 374 ERA, a 117 ERA plus. 2022 was a disaster, 523 ERA, an ERA plus of just 74. So I, I've had a, a, a popular method for these uh, most important starters have been, well, bounce back guys, guy who has a really good 21 and a bad 22 or the other way around, which, which one are we going to get? Jose Barrios, great choice. Yeah. Prime candidate, solid choice for sure. I think the, the top three teams that are projected to, you know, finish within the top three in whatever order in this division, Yankees, Blue Jays, Rays, they all have depth issues that uh, some popped up before spring training. Some have popped up during spring training for the Yankees. That's the case here. And uh, for me, it's Garrett Cole. He takes the ball when he does every single time. The Yankees' chances of winning that day are high. And you don't know what a Yankees world without Cole would look like at this point because uh, we ha- we've seen him post all the time. You wouldn't want to know what that world looked like because it wouldn't be pretty here. Um, it takes the ball when it's his turn. Nine times out of ten, he's pitching deep into the game. That helps the bullpen. That eases the lineup. It's a uh, part of what makes Garrett Cole an ace. So Cole's durability is one of the main engines for the Yankees drive toward a division title. They're the division favorites in the eyes of a lot of people going into 2023. I think without that, without Garrett Cole, the complexion of this entire division changes. As long as Garrett Cole is at the top of the Yankees rotation and they are a contention, he's more times than not, in my eyes, going to be the most important starting pitcher in the AL East. Great point. The value of a, of a perennial 200-inning guy, 200 innings, 200 strikeouts. You know, you, you can book it you know, with, with Garrett Cole and the value of that, really. It, it's just a rarity in today's game. And you just never worry about him, right? Right, Shaq? You just know he's going to take the ball. He's going to be – he's in terrific shape again. I know it's a cliche we say, but Garrett Cole is, is a fantastically conditioned athlete and uh, one of the most durable pitchers in the game today, without a doubt. Yeah, you do not want to formulate a plan of marching forward with the schedule uh, without Garrett Cole. So he, he, to me, is is the most important piece, maybe on the Yankees, too. I mean, we talk about Aaron Judge, obviously, but we've seen the Yankees have to navigate without Aaron Judge before. I don't think you, you'd want to have to go down that same path without a guy like uh, Garrett Cole. But this leads us into our, our Yankee talk here this week. And a bunch of the beat writers on Tuesday were talking about how Aaron Boone indicated that the team, the organization, uh, I think Brian Hoke used the phrase, they had the pound the table meeting. So I wasn't sure if that came from Aaron Boone's mouth, but let's just say it did. We had the pound the table meeting about the Yankees opening day roster on Tuesday. If you guys could pick one item that you would pound the table for with the Yankees in 2023, what would it be? Well, you know, we actually I had a chance to talk to Brian Cashman recently about his process, and he, you know, he's really evolved. You're talking about general manager has been around over two decades, 25 years now, whatever it is, and he is, yeah, the way he gathers information is that he tries to avoid those pound the table meetings because he feels like there's always kind of a lead dog in there that kind of leads and everybody kind of falls in line. So if it's a Tim Naring, or if it's, you know, back in the day, if it was Joe Torrey or somebody who's a real alpha dog starts pounding the table, then you don't get the real opinion of everybody around you. So Brian Cashman goes about it a different way and gathers his information and tries to isolate people to get their true opinions about what goes on. But I guarantee you 
There are some people in that room pounding the table for Anthony Volpe right now, right now, not waiting. They want him to be, some of them want him to be the leadoff hitter right now. We're certainly, uh, we've seen him bat leadoff a lot this spring. Now, is that going to happen? I don't know. Is the prudent thing to kind of keep all of your resources, all of your assets and stash him in AAA and have him ready to go in a month or two or whenever the need arises, if a trade doesn't materialize, Obviously, there's a lot of moving pieces here. Brian Cashman's got to make a trade at some point to free up some of this middle infield log jam. But there are people who say, you know what, if you pencil in out, you know, Anthony Volpe right now and bat him leadoff boldly, that he'll be the rookie of the year and you'll get an extra draft pick for doing so because of the new rules. Uh, the new rules dictate, you know, the service manipulation rules say if Anthony Volpe is a top rated prospect, he's promoted to the big leagues. And he, and he wins the rookie of the year, I think finishes in the voting. Maybe that's on the pitching side, I think, if he finished in the top three in the Cy Young. You get an extra draft pick at the end of round one. That's a late first-round draft pick that you can, you can add on top of Anthony Volpe's promotion. Uh, you know who was the last late first-round draft pick the Yankees had? Aaron Judge as a compensation pick for Nick Swisher. So how much do you value draft picks, especially at the lower first round? It's up for debate. It is very valuable. Is it worth it? I don't know if that moves the needle enough to get Anthony Volpe on opening day on the roster somewhere in that lineup. But I guarantee you, there are some people pounding the table for that in that room and in that meeting. Yeah, I wonder how much the like the strength, and this is going way into the weeds, but like I wonder in in the team's eyes, like how much the strength of a certain year's draft class plays in to that decision. Like, is it a deep draft class where there's gobs of talent going past the, the first round and where maybe there are signability issues with certain amateur prospects, stuff like that. I, I wonder given the year to year, like, is it a strong draft class? Is it a weak draft class? If that factors into the equation at all, probably would be a, a, a small detail, a small factor, but I wonder if it just be there period. His rankings matter. You have yeah. to be a top prospect ranked in one of the publications, ESPN or baseball America, several it's, it's listed there in the criteria. He could probably retain that even still into next year. If he, if he stays, if he remains a top prospect, which all indications are he will, but nonetheless, he fits the profile yeah. for getting an extra draft pick. If you go ahead, go ahead and, you know, push the envelope, promote him sooner than you normally would have in years past. And he does have success on the big league level. Now, on top of that, if he gets called up, say in June or, or May and ends up winning the rookie of the year at that point, he will still get a full year of service time as well as far as the, the service manipulation type uh, new rules in the recent collective bargaining agreement. All right, James, what do you have? The Yankees are in the meeting. They say, Mr. Smythe, we have decisions to make for 2023. What is the topic that is on the top of your mind? Don't forget about Oswald Peraza. <laughs> it's the nature of the competition that's been, you know, pitting, pitted at short. And I know we all love Anthony Volpe. I think, Oswald Peraza has been lost in the weeds almost all spring training. He did everything he needed to do last year to earn his promotions. And he showed, you know, it was a little, it was a, only a little taste, 18 games in the regular season. A lot of it was, uh, you know, a little uh, BABIP induced, but he does have good speed. He hit 306 with a 404 on base percentage and a 429 slug, 139 OPS plus. We know he, what he can do on the bases. We know what he can do in the field. And he's further along developmentally than Volpe. So as great as Volpe has looked this spring, 
I just say, let's not forget about Peraza. And I, I think Peraza should be the opening day shortstop. Strong arguments. Hard to argue. Definitely. I'm with you there. I think Peraza should be the guy on opening day. I'm going to breeze through mine quickly because I want to get Dan Allen Rourke's opinion on this. I want him to pound the table. Uh, for me, not so much about uh, player personnel, but if I was to pound the table with anything Yankee related, it would say keep the lineup more consistent during the regular season. And maybe they know something that we don't on this, but continuity for a player, a routine for a player. It seems to work pretty well here. So let's see more lineup continuity in 2023. There have been countless examples over the course of recent Yankee seasons where day-to-day the lineup has changed. And I wonder how much that actually affects the rhythm of a player. So I'd like to see a little bit more lineup continuity here this season. Dan Rourke, what would you pound the table on? All right, so I'm going to come off as such like a typical young Yankee fan here because I'm in a way criticizing Josh Donaldson, but I understand why he's on the roster. I would probably keep him on there too. You're paying him $25 million a year. The only thing that concerns me just a little bit, and it's kind of in regards to the opening lineup, just more so the, the year as a whole, I really hope that the Yankees don't try to, I'm going to say prove a point with Donaldson, but I'm nervous about them prioritizing his playing time over DJ LeMahieu and Glaber Torres. Last year, Glaber Torres, even with that worst month of all time in August, he was still a 114 OPS plus guy. DJ LeMahieu last year, until hurting his toe in the, the Boston series in August, he was arguably the Yankees' second best hitter up until that point with a, a 140 OPS plus. So I get with you know the, the infield log jam, and I, I, I'm rooting for Volpe to be on the roster. I'm a little bit nervous that, yeah, the Yankees may try to I don't want to say justify or prove a point, but like he's definitely going to see a lot of playing time this year. And if the bad play continues or the bad offense continues from last year into this year, I just hope the leash isn't all that long. So that's kind of where I'm at with it. Like Donaldson, I understand he's got to be on the roster, but maybe don't start him every day when you have DJ and Glaber. You know, the the question that that, that sort of comes to mind, Dan, and you know, I'm glad you're on, you're on this is looking for, it's hard not to look to the future, right? It's hard not to say, you know, Okay, we get it. You know, let's bide our time. This will work itself out. Cashman will pull off a trade at the trade deadline. We'll figure all this out. Maybe Anthony Volpe ends up at second base eventually. Peraza's your shortstop. LeMayu gets more third base. Maybe that's eventually going to be your best best lineup there is Volpe, Peraza, and then uh, LeMayu at third. To me, from a lineup construct, I can't. I salivate at the opportunity to have DJ LeMayu break up the swing and miss guys in the middle of the order behind Stanton. How many RBI situations did we see against Houston where there's too much swing and miss in the middle of that order? I know DJ LeMahieu is a good leadoff guy. He had good numbers there, but I love him batting fourth or fifth, right in the middle, splitting up Stanton and Donaldson or whoever that is in the middle of that order and having somebody like an Anthony Volpe with speed at the top of the order. I can't help but, but think, wow, that's, that's where we need to get to. It may not be opening day, but the best version of the Yankees is something there and the lineup constructed that way. Totally. Yeah. And with Volpe leading off, I love every time you mention that because I get equally as excited about that in its own right, Volpe leading off. But yeah, also the fact that it would probably push DJ down to the five hole, like you said, and that's huge. I mean, the Yankees lineup right now is probably, I mean, what I, it's a, a nice lineup can get the job done, but I would say it's probably the worst since probably the, the least deep lineup since before 2017. So if you were able to do that, Volpe in the Leo spot, DJ at fifth, that all of a sudden, like, a much better, much deeper lineup compared to say having Glaber in the fifth spot with, I don't know, like there's a world where for lineup balance purposes right now, if DJ's leading off, then Aaron Hicks could be your six hitter. So definitely. Yeah. I like DJ right behind Stanton. 
Me yep. too. Yeah, you know, especially with especially if Hopi's on base or guys are on base or Judge get gets walked a lot, pitched around, and all of a sudden, you know, you you've got some swing and miss guys coming up behind him that are kind of a little bit all or nothing. So I don't know. You know, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to slice it and dice it, but I you can't help but get you can't help but sort of dream on what we're, what's the best version of this Yankees team and lineup going to look like at the halfway point by the end of the season, going into postseason. But it's hard not to dream on, you know what, this is kind of what, where we need to get to, how we get there is another question. Yeah. And one yeah. more thing, uh, sorry, like in the end, like as a fan, like I am realistic with that, like, is what matters is when the team's good enough, like I think they are to win the AL East, like you kind of buy yourself a little bit of time. That's why I'm not freaking out right now because we have until the trade deadline to, to get us a piece that'll eventually get us over the hump of the Astros. So like, I don't need Volpe. I mean, I would prefer him to be on the roster, but just talking about the lineup, like if he's not, leading off there to, to begin the season that's fine but like ultimately him at the top of the order come october i think is is the best best possible yankees team yeah i, th I think the end goal at some point before the 2023 season is put to bed we need to see volpe in the leadoff spot and lemayhu in the middle of the lineup that is the the ideal situation for for the yankees lineup in 2023 but hey we're about less than a week to go before the, the opening day roster decisions come down. They'll probably be coming down right after this episode's released because that's just the theme we go with here on Toe in the Slab so far in 2023. But opening day, about a week away, and we cannot wait to get going here with the Major League Baseball season. So that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, congrats again to Team Japan for winning the World Baseball Classic, and we will talk to you next week right ahead of opening day quick reminder please subscribe to our youtube channel so you do not miss a single thing of what we're streaming each and every single week for david Cohn, for james Smythe, for our terrific producer dan work this is justin shackle we'll talk to you next week on tone the slab pitching with david Cohn, a production of john boy media take care 